Welcome back to another week in the world of Angel Insights brought to you by Syndicate Room. This is the show that interviews the world's most prominent angel investors to discover their tips, tactics and strategies when it comes to angel investing in tech startups. And the show really lives up to its name today with an incredible guest joining me in the form of David Rose, founder and CEO at Gust, the platform that has allowed $1.8 billion to flow through Gust to startups. And David himself is a serial entrepreneur having raised tens of millions of VC funding and being named a world-conquering entrepreneur by none other than Business Week. David is also a prolific angel investor, having invested himself in over 70 early-stage companies and having founded and chairing the New York Angels. It has to also be said that David is a master of the VC pitch and you can check out his incredible TED Talk, which now has almost a million views, by heading over to TED and searching for David Rose. Also, if you would like the show notes, from the episode today, as well as checking out our Investor Academy, then you can head over to syndicateroom.com and check that out there. However, it is now time to welcome the main man, David Rose, founder and CEO at Gust. Well, David, it's so awesome to have you on the show. I was lucky enough to see your speech at the Syndicate Room event recently, so thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Now, now talk to me. You've been in the industry for, for a couple of years now. Um, so, so how did you make your move into the world of investing? Well, interestingly, I consider myself first and foremost an entrepreneur. So I am a serial entrepreneur, started half a dozen companies. Uh, I'm actually a third generation entrepreneur. My uh, grandfather and great uncle founded a number of companies early in the 20th century, uh, eventually uh, founding one in real estate that went on to be quite a, a large uh, operation. My uh, father was uh, an entrepreneurial type, uh, also in real estate. Uh, back during the dot-com boom in the 1990s, uh, I was a uh, runner-up for the finalist for the Entrepreneur of the Year Award in the United States. Um, my father won it in 2003. Wow. <laughs> my, fa- my father is now uh, 87 years old and is uh, you know, currently uh, doing everything from developing shopping centers in Ghana to being active here in the U.S. As a matter of fact, just last week, he flew over to uh, uh, across the pond to Oxford where he gave a speech um, about the charitable nature of the British population. He was talking about a book. He, he published a book last year you know, called Making a Living, Making a Life, uh, a collection of some of his speeches. So he's in his late 80s. He is an Active entrepreneurial. Uh, well, what's, e- what's even more bizarre than the fact that I'm a third generation entrepreneur with the, with you know the previous generation still out there functioning, um, I'm actually I think the world's only third generation business angel investor, because my uh, late great uncle, after whom I was named, the original David Rose, who was born in the 19th century, was uh, in his later life the business angel behind things like the um, portable kidney dialysis uh, unit vascular stapling, hyperbaric operating chambers and hospitals, desalination projects in the Middle East, concrete boats through the wall air conditioning. I actually dedicated my first book uh, to him uh, and my second book uh, to my parents. Um, but so, so I grew up with uh, hearing stories from my Uncle Dave, David, the original David Rose, uh, about all of these uh, early stage investments he was doing. He, back then, the term business angel hadn't even been coined yet. Uh, so he considered himself an innovation capitalist Catalyst, and so he, he so he would travel the world and, and see interesting new technologies and in, in labs and hospitals, uh, and then you know bring it back to the U.S. and provide seed funding to a uh, primary investigator and and help fund the whole thing. So, so he was actually on, on the fo- 
founding board of uh, trustees of Technion uh, Institute of Technology in Israel. Just an extraordinary guy. So I have to ask then, with with that wealth of kind of stories and narrative behind you, what's, what was your favorite story? Is that one that shines out? Oh, I mean, you know, I mean, he had an idea for for concrete boats, <laughs> um, which was really interesting because you could build them relatively cheaply. Never, never quite took off, but uh, you know, during, during uh, the mid twentieth century, that was a potential way of working. Um, and in, in in real estate, for example, uh, he was he started off in construction and was building apartment buildings. And back then, you know, air conditioning was only introduced in the sort of early mid twentieth uh, century in the United States. Take these big units and stick it in a in the window. And it would, you know, you'd open your window part way and then fill out the rest of the space that the AC didn't cover. Uh, and since he was building new buildings, he said, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why block your window? How about if we actually um, you know, put a hole, build a hole into the wall underneath the windows like a sleeve, and then you could put the air conditioner in the sleeve? which nobody had ever done. So he went to the largest uh, air conditioning manufacturer, uh, I think it was Carrier at that point, and said, hey, um, can you design me an air conditioner that would fit into a sleeve that I can build into these buildings? And they said, well, who would want to do that? And, you know, they, they're, These are retrofit things. And he said, well, I'm building a new building. So tell you what, I will cover the cost of you designing this uh, through-the-wall air conditioner. And then, so that was the very first through-the-wall air conditioners were done by, uh, by David Rose. And so what were your biggest learnings, then, from seeing your father's success and work ethic and your uncle's? What what, what did you really take away from from witnessing that firsthand? All kinds of wonderful things. I've actually written an article for the Wall Street Journal um, called uh, "Sayings of My Father," uh, which people people can uh, Google David S. Rose father or whatever. And we'll include uh, the link in the show notes. Oh, great. And, and, uh, so it's sort of, you know, full of all these things that I've, that I've heard from him growing up. And, and one, one case in point was absolutely a combination of both searing and instructive to me, uh, as both an investor and an entrepreneur. Um, and that was, uh, back in the, oh, 1970s, uh, in real estate. Um, he was brought on to manage a, a major new development that was being built in Midtown Manhattan. And this was being built around, uh, 42nd Street, right just sort of west of Broadway. Uh, in the middle of the theater district, uh, it was an entire super block. It was like two full blocks together, uh, and it was built as sort of luxury housing. The only problem was uh, as soon as the developers had gotten it built, um, or even just before it was finished, the whole real estate market crashed in New York, and there was no way on earth that anybody was going to come into this area and pay luxury re- luxury rents. So what do you do with it? And he was in charge of renting the building for them. Uh, so he said, hmm, okay, you can't get free market there. The only way that you can make this work is to get a very, very deep subsidy, sort of like council housing in the UK, but mm. you, know, you, know, um, you know, subsidized in a program called Section 8, which is as deep as it goes. It says whatever you your income is, you'll pay 20 25% of that for your housing. So if you only make $100 a year, you'd pay $25 a year in housing. So it's totally deep subsidy. The only problem was, who who does that bring in? That brings in really poor people, right? Yeah. And poor people are not good people. And the and the area around this whole west side of, of Broadway was a very working class area. Typically Irish, um, uh, was called Hell's Kitchen, but it was a, a very workless area. And the idea to them of having giant, these giant towers filled with poor people, you know, you know, thugs, you know, being subsidized was anathema. And so they were like, you know, rioting and no, is this going to happen? And so my father says, okay, how can you, how can you, you can reconcile these two things? And then he said, well, you know, there is actually a class of people who are qualified for these sub deep subsidies, but are actually classy people. And who would those be? 
Well, they would be actors, right? Actors don't make any money, but they're all really classy. Um, and he actually quoted Mike Todd, Elizabeth Taylor's uh, uh, first husband, um, as saying that his family growing up was often broke but never poor. And that was a great line. So he said, okay, we'll only <laughs> rent apartments to actors and stagehands and people in the theatrical industry. And so that had never been done before. People thought this was a crazy. It's got to be illegal. I mean, how can you discriminate only against actors? But you know, he looked up the regulations. It turned out there was no regulation in America saying you can't rent to only actors. So there were a bunch of challenges. They, they got through the challenges, and he ended up cutting deals with actors and all the unions, Actors Equity and the Screen Actors Guild and the radio, telephone, television performers and so on. Uh, and so they announced this thing, uh, and it was amazing because it turned out that when they did this, this is right next to Broadway, they had a 3,000 person waiting list from all of these impoverished actors who were high quality you know, high class actors and when when and so it was i just watching that firsthand was amazing but even more amazing was that the dedication and the open grand opening of this thing where they had the mayor of new york and the developer and the heads of all these famous actors i mean woody allen and helen hayes all got apartments there and it was a you know, big 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 thing everybody is you know, giving awards and, and keys to the city and honorary membership and actors' equity to everybody. And, and the one person who was not mentioned and who wasn't even on stage was my father, who was the guy who was absolutely single-handedly responsible for this whole thing over extraordinary opposition. And I was at that point probably 16 or 17 um, and studying urban planning and stuff in school. And, and I came home and I was almost in tears. I mean, I, you know, I, 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 I said to him, you know, this was entirely your thing. It was visionary. It was brilliant. It was insanely successful and not one person is giving you you know any credit for any of this everybody else is taking credit and he looked at me very calmly with a slight smile on his face and said you know one of the things you will learn david is that in life you can get virtually anything done if you're willing to give away the credit and that stuck with me for a very long time to this day and and then having having seen that i'd love to hear then your perspective on the industry and its development as a whole and how you've seen both the entrepreneurship and the investing scene evolve over time well it's absolutely fascinating because it's it, it is evolving at warp speed if you think about um you know what entrepreneurship is like or who are entrepreneurs i mean i i am one i come from a long line of them i teach an entrepreneurship program as we support a platform that supports entrepreneurs uh and it's very very clear to me that you know entrepreneurship is a spectrum there are some people who would never in a million years ever start you know take the lead start something themselves they want to work for somebody else they want to have a path to follow and, and get done right that's one end the other end of the spectrum is Richard Branson, right? <laughs> you know, so so and and between those two, there's this sort of you know you know zero to hundred spectrum. But one of the things that I found is that from ninety nine to hundred, at the very top of the very end entrepreneurial end of the spectrum, there's what I call an air gap between ninety nine and hundred. And so one out of a hundred people is a, is a Richard Branson type, is or a me type, or my father. I mean, you are total. You're an entrepreneur, and entrepreneurs are basically crazy people who just think differently. It's it's, you know, this is beyond the spectrum. You can have people who are more or less risk tolerant, more or less you know, self-starters, more or less leaders and stuff. But that last 1% of the population is just a bizarre, psychologically different kind of person. Uh, and I happen to think that entrepreneurs have, are the ones who have changed history. Um, but if you think that only one out of 100 is, not, is an entrepreneur, then A, you got to find those people and B, you got to nurture them. And C, the number of entrepreneurs or that percentage I don't think has changed in throughout history. 
But what you're seeing now in a 21st century globalized economy is 1% of the world is entrepreneurial. And if you have, we're heading to a global population of, what, 10 million or so, that means 1% is 100 million entrepreneurs around the world um, who are ready to do exciting things. And for the first time now, because of all these tools and technology and connectivity and the internet and globalization and everything, it doesn't matter whether they are in a little teeny weeny town on the outskirts of Bangalore or whether they're in, in, in the city in London or, or whether, wherever they are, you can now plug into a whole world of customers and suppliers and investors and and uh, everything and i think this is a an absolutely golden time for entrepreneurship and speaking of that air gap at the top i have to ask then there are you know incubators and accelerators for founders themselves to learn entrepreneurship attributes and characteristics do you think entrepreneurship then can be taught or it's an innate being well, I, I think it's. And I, I have over time, my thoughts on this have changed. And and where I where I am at this point, after many years of doing this stuff, is as I said, I think it's a spectrum. And I think the goal of entrepreneurship education is to move people along the spectrum. So if you're somebody who would never even imagine being an entrepreneur, you're not going to become one. But you might be uh, when once you understand how it works and what the risk reward ratio is, and and it's not total insanity, only partial insanity. You might you, you might agree at some point to work for a startup. And if you're the kind of person who is working for the startup, you know, sort of halfway up the spectrum, you know, might be inclined to maybe do it yourself. At least you can now think, you know, maybe I could do it. Maybe if I can match up with another partner, another entrepreneurial partner, I can, we can go co-found a company. And if you happen to be at the top end, you're one of those natural born, you know, one out of a hundred entrepreneurs, entrepreneurship education gives you the tools and skills you need to do it right and to save an enormous amount of time and effort and wheel spending and difficulty and trauma from how to do it because it gives you the skills. As a matter of fact, I, you know, I mentioned my second book. I my my new book is my first book was called Angel Investing: The Gus Guide to Making Money and Having Fun Investing in Startups, uh, and so that was designed as the textbook for business angel investors, and it has become sort of the standard in the industry since it came out two years ago. It's a New York Times bestseller. It's available on Amazon Kindle. Um, and we had what was interesting was in addition to being the textbook for all these business angels around the world, and it's now translated into half a dozen languages. Um, a lot of entrepreneurs were reading it to understand how financing, angel financing works. And so I had so many of them and so many requests for an entrepreneurial book that this new book coming out uh, is called The Startup Checklist, 25 Steps to a Scalable High Growth Business. And the goal there is to help teach these entrepreneurs, whether they are the first-timers who have no idea what they're doing or the seasoned entrepreneur who wants to say, you know, shortcut a lot of the, the, the Sturm and Drang to get it done, exactly what you need to do and how you start a business. You know, what's a business model canvas? How do you write a business plan? How do you divide equity with your you know, co-founders? You know, how do you pick an accountant? What do you have to do to, for fair market valuations? How do you find angels? All that you know, nitty-gritty blocking and tackling kind of stuff uh, for entrepreneurs. And that's the kind of thing that you can absolutely teach in business schools and accelerators and entrepreneurship training programs, the nuts and bolts of how you do this stuff, which then, when you combine that with a real entrepreneur, is a rocket ship. And, and then having done both books, you know, the first book being the kind of uh, standard for angel business investing in the environment, what I'd like, you know, I, obviously you've spoken to thousands and thousands of very successful angels. What are the commonalities in those angels you think that makes them great? Well, the interesting thing is that the, you know, the Angel Capital Association in the United States uh, did a, um, a survey of all of their members of groups, and they found that the average business angel in the United States um, has 15 years 
experience as an entrepreneur and had started two or three companies. So what you're looking at here in, in many cases for business angels are entrepreneurs who have grown up, had an exit or had a success uh, and are now looking to, to sort of play in the same space but from a different perspective. You know, you round that out with, you know, doctors and lawyers and, you know, corporate executives who have the, the wherewithal to be able to do this. Uh, but, but typically they will follow along with the entrepreneurial, you know, lead investor kind of kind of type. Uh, so, uh, so what we're seeing here are are these entrepreneurs who now want to give. You know, a, a large part of uh, being an, a business angel is to give back. If you're a very rich person, there are other ways to make more money than being an angel investor, or at least less crazy ways of doing it. Um, to be a business angel, to do it right, as I lay out in the book, it takes you know blocking and tackling. It takes looking at a whole lot of companies. The typical angel, successful angel, looks at forty different companies. Four zero before they find one to invest in. That's a lot of work to make a, uh, you know, a 50,000 pound investment or whatever, right? Um, but you, but you do it. And ultimately, you know, you have to understand that half the investments you make are going to go south. They're going to go wrong and you're not going to get anything back at all. And of the remaining ones that actually succeed, you know, a couple will return the money you put in and a couple more will be a, a, a moderate success returning two or three times the money. But at that point, if you've been holding this for, you know, five, 10 years, you're out there, 90 or 10 companies have, have exited and you've just back to where you started from. That means all your return is in that last one company, which is why those companies need to return literally 30 times your original investment. And that's one of the things that you know angels to be successful have to get into the habit of really understanding how the math works here. And it's very challenging math, but exciting for those of us who do it. What do you think then are the benefits of having that entrepreneurial background behind you as a business angel? Is it empathy? Is it patience, understanding? What is it, do you think, that makes them the best? Well, you know, entrepreneurs are not particularly known for empathy or patience (laughs) or even understanding. I think you could be empathetic (laughs) of the founding journey. Yes, but but, but what it it does give you is the same frame of reference, right? So if you are a traditional public markets, you know, an investor who invests in listed companies and you're used to being able to be liquid and to, you know, buy and sell your positions overnight and you're interested in a a quick return, um, that's completely different from the startup world. Startup founders know it's a long, hard slog. Your money is completely illiquid until there's an exit. It's very, very risky. Um, And so when, when business angels who are former entrepreneurs invest in companies, they go in knowing that it's, you know, they, they go in as optimistic as the entrepreneur, hoping for a, you know, a unicorn, a billion-dollar company. But they also know it's likely to take a long time, that it's very, very risky, their money is illiquid. Uh, whereas people who come in from, you know, say, a, a typical you know, executive or doctor or lawyer or whatever who has the, the economic wherewithal but doesn't have the mindset, uh, it can be very frustrating to find that, no, your money is, once it goes in, it's stuck. It's not coming out for 10 years. And, you know, hey, this is very risky and the whole thing might, might fail. So I, I think an understanding of the way the game works and, and what the general metrics are is the best thing that a smart business angels can bring to the table. And I want to then, before we dive into a quick fire round, discuss then the wider market and your your views on, on the startup investing industry going forward. We saw a good year for startup investing in 2015. Where do you stand on 2016 and 17? Will we see improvements? 
Well, again, you know, I, I happen to look at a longer-term horizon than that. There's a wonderful book called The Singularity is Near by a guy named Ray Kurzweil, which sort of defined this whole concept of the technological singularity and exponential change in technology, how things are moving and changing faster and faster and faster uh, to the point where they're accelerating so fast, almost like to warp speed. Um, and what that means is everything is changing, uh, in particular, the access to capital and the support for entrepreneurship. So I think you're just going to see, regardless of any uptick, downtick, economy, Europe, the U.S., Asia, anywhere. Uh, All this is doing is making it more and more easy to start a company, more and more easy to finance a company, more and more easy to use tools like Gust and and read the books that that we've written to go make these kinds of of investments. Uh, It requires less money to start a company, which means more people are available to start companies. My first company took $20 million in, in venture capital to get to our internet product ship. Today, you can come up with an idea for an app, sketch it out in the back of a napkin, have it coded online from somebody in Sri Lanka for a couple of thousand quid, and you're in, you know, you're in great shape, right? And you're off to the running. So I think we're going to see a continuing explosion of entrepreneurship financed by a continuing explosion in business angel investing. And given that, I don't know if it'll take, you know, be one year, two years, five years, or ten years. I just know that that's where things are going in the near to midterm future. And I'd love to dive into a lightning round with you now. So I say a short statement and you give me your immediate thoughts. I'll give it a shot. Go ahead. So the best advice ever given to you? I think if you, as I mentioned from my father, you know, you can get anything done if you're willing to give away the credit. And then your favorite investing resource, this could be a book, blog, podcast. Well, I would be uh, shouted out of the off the podcast by my entire team if I didn't say gust.com, G-U-S-T dot C-O-M. Uh, <laughs> Gust is the global platform uh, for the uh, early stage investor. We have more business angel investors around the world than any other platform. Um, we've done over, you know, tracked over a billion dollars in financing of startup companies from business angels. We have the the tools you need to do that, and it was designed, frankly, from my experience as a, a you know, as a business angel who's invested in over a hundred companies. Um, this is the tool that I use to manage to both find companies, you know, work on the collaboration with the companies, manage the investments, manage my portfolio so gust.com and and then what's the hardest part of being an angel for you do you think Again, since angels are these grown-up entrepreneurs, and entrepreneurs by definition, you know, entrepreneurs are we know are crazy people, right? And the average business angel, having started three companies of his or her own, is you know crazy cubed, which means we're all like psychotic. I mean, so we're all, you're all nuts. Business angels are not rational people, um, and so uh, you know the hardest part is probably uh, tamping down the optimism because once you're on the investing side as opposed to the operating side, entrepreneurs have to be optimistic, right? But you know, business angels need to be a slightly more realistic. <laughs> and then, and then, what was the biggest mistake you see angels make? You see a lot of angels. What are the, what's the uh, mistake? Well, so the, the the biggest thing is you know, for first time angels who aren't coming from entrepreneurial perspective or who are but don't know how this works, is you you get the you know uh, the feeling you can write one check, one and done. I'll write one check, and then you know, in in a year or two, I'll have a home run and get you know fifty times my money. That doesn't happen. The bottom line is I've never seen a single company ever, ever, ever out of over 100 plus investments hit its numbers, hit its projections. So companies always need more money. And whether it's a 
down round or an up round, whether it's going poorly or, or, uh, or wonderfully, a company's going to need more money. And you better be there to, to write a, a second check. So it's not one and done. And number two, you're not going to be in and out in a, in a year or two or three, no matter what the projections are. The average holding time for an angel investment in the United States is over nine years. So that money isn't liquid. So the idea that you need to keep feeding the kitty and you're going to be stuck up there for nine years, getting that through people's heads is really tough. And then I want to finish on the optimistic note and finish with the career highlight for you. What, what's it been? Oh, I mean, I'm a long-term player, both as an entrepreneur and as an investor. Um, and so uh, Gust now, when we started Gust, it was with a 15-year business model to revolutionize the whole finance industry. And we're now actually in year 12 of a 15-year business plan, and we're on target. And I can't tell you how amazing that is. I mean, we now are, are back-ending something like 400,000 companies around the world who use us to collaborate with investors, 50,000 or so accredited investors uh, who are looking to invest invest in early-stage startup companies. We, we power the official online hubs for London, for New York, for Boston. Um, we have uh, you know hundreds of accelerator programs and incubators who we're all powering. And so we are helping to bring this whole early-stage world together. And seeing that happen you know, after a decade of planting the seeds and, and envisioning it is really rewarding. Well, David, thank you so much for joining me today. It really has been phenomenal to hear your story and, and your family's past. Really so inspiring. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure, Harry. Thank you very much. What a phenomenal guest David was and so many takeaways from that episode today. And to catch the show notes from the episode with David, you can head over to syndicateroom.com to view our Investor Academy where we have all the show notes from the previous episodes as well as today's show. We'd also like to remind you that early stage investing is risky. Therefore, please ensure to do the proper due diligence prior to making the investment. As always, it's been an absolute pleasure bringing you today's show and we look very forward to bringing you next week's episode.